and offers him its back. And he looks at the eagle and thinks, do I look like Gandalf? I'm not getting on your back. Who knows where you're going to take me? Um, then he's praying again and he's praying again and, and a rope gets let down near his hand and there's this rope. He doesn't know where it's come from. Shall I take the rope or not? Who's at the other end? I'm not sure. I'm not sure about this. So he, he, he pushes it to one side and prays again, God, help me. And then finally a helicopter arrives and comes in near and tries to sit, send out a ladder. And the man prays, Lord, why don't you rescue me? And a voice replies from heaven, I sent you a bird, a rope, and a helicopter. Why didn't you use them? We would be very foolish if we ignored the thing that God is doing for us because it wasn't what we expected. We would be very foolish if we ignored God's rescue plan, wouldn't we? Now this letter to the Hebrews was written by a pastor who loves his people. And he senses that they are in grave spiritual danger. So he sends them his best sermon. And here it is in this letter. And his main point can be summed up in chapter 2, verse 1. Have a look at that there on page 13, oh, sorry, 1201. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. It's a warning. And it's the first of several in this book as we take this journey through Hebrews. We're going to find that the writer will do some teaching and encouraging and then he will give a warning. And there are about five or six warnings in the book. And what you're going to notice is that as the warnings go on, they become more and more intense. We might find actually that it, some of it is going to sound quite harsh to our modern ears. But sometimes that's what love requires. My wife and I have been blessed with five children, and we've been on the journey of parenting for about over 22 years now. Parenting, we've discovered, is best carried out in the context of a lot of love and laughter, a lot of warmth and humility of parents who were able to say, I love you, and I'm really sorry I got that wrong. That's the background of parenting. But as a parent, there are times when you have to give a warning to a son or a daughter, you have to give them a sincere, serious warning. And you have to say, look, you, might, you really must listen to this now. You really must listen. And the warning might sound severe, but it's actually what love requires. Listen, love, if you run into that busy road without looking both ways, you could be hit by a car and hurt or killed. Listen to my voice. And I've raised children, I've raised four boys, and what do they do when they come to the road? <laughs> Straight out. Stop! Look both ways. Now as this letter goes on, the writer is going to give more and more reasons why his readers should pay attention and take appropriate action. Pay attention to the salvation that God has given us. And this first warning is actually quite low volume. You know, the, the amp is down, turned down to number three. Okay? By chapter 10, the amp will be turned up to 11. Because if you haven't got it by chapter 10, you're really not listening carefully enough. And so they've got this warning here. And what's the warning? Verse 1, so that we don't drift away. There's an image here drawn from the world of boating. Imagine you're in a small boat and you've gone out on the seashore and maybe you've, it's a rental and you're out there. You're not an experienced 
boater, and, and before you know it, you realize that this boat has actually drifted out. It's been carried out away from where you wanted to be, away from the destination or away from safety into the deep waters by the powerful currents underneath. We must, in order not to drift away, brothers and sisters, we've got to pay very close attention to what we've been taught. Verse 2 talks about, makes a comparison. It's talking about the rescue package that God gave in the Old Testament to his ancient people, Israel. It says, the message that was spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. There was a very old tradition that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 32, that the message that Moses was given was actually delivered by um, an angel. This, This is a very old idea. That actually angels are a bit like couriers. You know, they, bring, they bring the message from God. And that Moses had received the revelation from God by the hands of an angel delivering it to him. And that this was the message that God had sent to his people then. Delivered by angels. And if you disobeyed it and violated the terms of that relationship, there were consequences. There was a just punishment. Now, what happened to that generation of people who were saved and rescued from the land of Egypt? They were brought out with great power, remember? They saw wonderful deeds of God. They saw God stretch out his strength on their behalf. They went and walked with Moses. The journey would have taken about two weeks to get to the promised land, but they ended up dying in the wilderness. Why? Because they disobeyed the message that they were given. So here's the nature of this warning. If they received a just punishment for disobeying God, how much more should we, will we escape if we ignore the salvation that has come to us? Think about how much greater this rescue plan is. Verses three and four give us a comparison. The salvation, it says, was first announced by the Lord. That's Jesus. Jesus came to our world, grew up as a boy and a man, and for three years he spent time walking the earth of this, this planet, teaching people and giving the teaching about the kingdom and training his disciples and followers what they should do and passing on the good message to them. It was announced to us by Jesus Christ himself. And then it was confirmed, it says here, by those who heard him. So when Jesus died and rose and ascended and went back to heaven, he didn't leave us in a vacuum. He left us with his chosen spokesmen, the apostles, the ones who were entrusted with the good words, the deposit. And they kept those words for us and they taught them again and again and again. And they wrote them down. And those words are enshrined for us in the book we call the New Testament. It's the apostolic message from those who heard Jesus, those 11 disciples and the apostle Paul. We've had it given to us, he says. And this message, which came from Jesus and was confirmed by people who heard him, was also testified to by God himself. It says here in verse 4, God testified to it by signs and wonders and miracles. You know, in the early days of Jesus and the early days of the church, Miracles happened. People were healed, amazingly healed from diseases. Some were raised from the dead. There were wonderful things happened. 
Supernatural things happened. All of these things were to validate and confirm and prove and underline that this was the message from God. We don't have God's action like that so often in our world today because we have the word written down for us. But God can and still does do that sometimes. But God underlined and proved this is the message. And then the Holy Spirit came. And we do have this, don't we? Look at the end of verse 4. Gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life. The Holy Spirit, God himself, comes and moves in with you in your heart. In the Bible, the heart is the center of the personality. It's the seat of who you really are. The heart thinks. The heart chooses and decides. The heart feels. It's the center, the control center of who you are as a person. Your thoughts, your, your will, your feelings are all centered in your heart. And the Bible teaches that when you become a Christian, you receive the new birth, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory living in you. And if you are a believer, the Spirit is very subtle. But he is there, a warm, subtle, disruptive presence, personal presence in your life who enables you to do new things. He gives you new kinds of thinking and ideas and a new conscience. And he motivates you to change and be transformed, to become a different person. That's the Holy Spirit sent to each one of us, a deposit guaranteeing the future that God's going to bring. See, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all threw themselves into this salvation. It is the total package, signed, sealed, and delivered, And notice how he describes it in verse 3. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? So great. We would be very foolish if we ignored the very thing that God is doing for us because it wasn't what we expected or because we got too used to it. And so he warns us. How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? And this word ignore can be also translated neglect. It carries the notion of indifference or being careless. Very few Christians just wake up one day and decide, you know what, I don't think I'm going to be a Christian anymore. I've changed my mind about it. Very few people just wake up and think, ah, I just decided it isn't true. I've been in the role of an elder, which is a pastor, for over 25 years now. And I've almost never seen that happen, somebody who just decides like that. It it can happen, but it's quite rare. But I have seen many, many more cases, a tragic number of people who gradually, bit by bit, became indifferent and careless about Jesus Christ. It just stole over them. It's so subtle. And I've noticed a few pressure points over the time. The busy young couple. The busy young couple. You can be very uh, enthusiastic and zealous for Jesus as a young adult. You've got all your time, your energy. You're, You're full of beans. It's all new. It's great. It's exciting. What a wonderful face. And then you get married. And that's a gift. 
But over time, as you get married, you get a house, you've got a mortgage, you've got a job, you've got responsibilities, maybe there's kids showing up, you, you, your life crowds in on you. What do you find over time? Bit by bit, inch by inch, you start to drift away. You're just too tired. Well, we don't have to go to church every week. Let's go away for the weekend again. I, I haven't got time to read my Bible in the week. I can't make it to a prayer meeting. So busy. So many pressures. And my dad, who was, been, was a pastor for 48 years, said that he lost count of the number of couples who woke up in their 60s and said, we just blow, have just blown 30 years. We drifted. And once the years are gone, they've gone. There's also another person I think is under peculiar pressure. I want to speak to you here. If you're a young person from a Christian family, you're so familiar with all this stuff. You've got it with your mother's milk. You've been here coming into this church since before you can remember. You've been through all the youth works, and they're all teaching the Bible and talking about Jesus. And it can become so familiar that you actually become indifferent to it. Same old, same old. You know, you could be in very grave danger at the same time as being in a position of real privilege because the things of Jesus have become so tarnished for you because, because of familiarity, which can breed contempt. Be very careful, friends, if that's you. And the third kind of person is what I would call the jaded Christian. Some of us have been hurt by church. We've been hurt by other Christians. They've let us down badly. We really feel it. I've seen this in my own family. People have done things or let us down in such a way that we are hurt, and it's that kind of hurt can take a long time to get over. It's not just a quick fix. Forgiveness can take years, you know. And so you start, the whole thing gets tarnished with the same brush. Oh, they're always saying that. I, do, I, I can't trust them. And somehow... Jesus himself gets put in with that feeling of being jaded and cynical. Be very careful if that's you. Be very careful. I'm not saying it's easy to get out of those feelings. It may take a long time. But friends, there is a warning here. Let's not neglect the great salvation that we've been given. Because we're hurt or jaded, because we're used to it, or because we're so busy. What about you? What evidence is there now in your life that the message of Jesus is true and powerful? What evidence is there in our church that the message of Jesus is true and powerful? Have we begun to drift? Take a moment. Have you begun to ignore and be indifferent to the message of life to which you should be paying closer attention? That's the warning. And that's the first four verses. And the whole rest of the chapter, actually, is about how great the salvation is. Because he's given us the warning, and now he's going to say, look, here's how great it is. Last Sunday, a small group of us, uh, myself, Bob Robinson, Steve Bialy, and Ben Robinson, we were in uh, the United States meeting with a wonderful church there in, in Arizona, talking about how we could work together for the cause of Christ here in this country. And they were so generous with us with time, and, and advice, and they were also incredibly generous to us with food 
and restaurants. So none of us lost weight on that trip. And on the last morning after church, they took us to a, a, a restaurant called Firebirds, uh, which was a, a, did gr- grilled meat of various kinds. And we had this final lunch before we got on the plane. And as we were driving to the airport, my colleague Ben leant over to me in the car and he said, I think that's the best steak I've ever tasted. The thing is, I didn't order steak. (laughs) You know, one would be very foolish to turn down that steak meal and and say, I'll get some fast food chicken nuggets on the way to the airport. And it's so great. The best I've ever tasted. And so this writer goes to town in the rest of the chapter. He rolls up his sleeves and he says, just look how great this, this salvation is. It's all about Jesus. And he's going to tell us three things about Jesus. I'm going to move through these at some pace, by the way. Jesus is our representative. Jesus is our pioneer. Jesus is our high priest. Graham, our representative, our pioneer, our high priest. Firstly, he's our representative, verse 5. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Sorry, I'm on the wrong chapter, verse five, chapter 2, verse 5. It's not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. Jesus Christ is our representative. He does for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Now, if you get in a car this morning and you drive north for about 45 minutes on a clear run, you will reach a very impressive building. It's only 12 miles away. We refer to it as the House of Commons. It's quite a spectacular building. You can go up to the House of Commons and stand on the the bank of the River Thames and look with admiration at the facade. But you and I can't just wander in there and take part in the decisions governing this great nation. We can't just go in. Security is very tight. There are rules and systems and procedures about who gets to take part in governing the country. I can't just go and sit down on one one bench uh, and take a seat at the House of Commons. But my representative can. Sir Edward Davy, MP, my elected representative, the Member of Parliament for Kingston and Surbiton, because of our system, parliamentary democracy, you appoint someone who is there on your behalf. Your MP can carry your concerns and your hopes into Parliament in his or her own person. In his first term of office, this is more than 25 years ago, Sir Ed took part in a vote that I felt was morally significant for this country, and I contacted his office, and he called me back at home from Parliament to discuss it. My representative was in touch. He wanted to know, he wanted to understand, he wanted to reason with me. And because the representative is up there and you are not, he is also can act as your substitute. He can do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. And that's the point of verses 5 to 9 here. 
Verses 6 to 8 are a long quote from the Old Testament from one of the Psalms. Psalm 8 is all about human beings. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The whole world is full of your glory, Lord. And then the psalmist thinks about human beings. He thinks, when I consider your, your, the stars and the heavens and the works of your fingers, what is humankind that you should think about us? What is man and woman that you should care for us? We're just so insignificant. And yet, you've made us, Lord, you've made us a little lower in the status chain than the angels themselves. And you've crowned us with glory and honor. God made us to govern his world, to rule it, to take care of it, to be the stewards and the developers, the protectors, the governors of the entire world. That's the story of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, God makes us in his image to fill the world under his rule and to reign over it properly. God put this enormous trust into little human hands who were made to reflect his good rule in his good creation. And what a mess we have made of that. You think about what we know about the world now. You know, the majority of species that have ever existed are now extinct. And some of those precious species we are now hunting out of existence for the sake of profit. Think about the way we've polluted this world, its waters and its atmosphere. Think about the waste that we produce and bury in the ground. Think about the environment. Think about us hacking down the rainforest. Think about how we treat our fellow man. The inequality that perpetuates around the whole world where some of us are obsessed with the latest first world problem and many of us can't get a drink of clean water. Think about the the poverty that still ravages this world, the disease. This world is in semi-chaos most of the time. Many countries have got terrible problems with poverty and a few individuals who are rich enough in that country to solve all the problems. God gave us this trust and we've made a terrible fist of this beautiful responsibility. So is it hopeless? Is our planet really doomed? No. Hebrews wants us to get ready for the big reveal. Verse 8. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we don't see everything subject to them. Exactly. Human beings aren't ruling the world well. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Jesus became one of us. He became the kind of human we should have been. Jesus is the true human being, the one who, who does live in God's world and steward it and love it and care for it and, and lead it and develop it and rule it well. Jesus has been made one of us. He's been crowned with glory and honor just as we should have been. That means he's governing the world as it should be. And it says here that Jesus tasted death for everyone. It's referring to his death on the cross. Jesus' death was unique. It was the death of a perfect human being who was representing all the imperfect people who he was going to save. 
He suffered an unimaginable torment and death at the cross. He was forsaken by God the Father, punished and crushed and torn apart. And he died that death that we deserved so that we could be forgiven, restored, put back together. He tasted it for you. He's your representative. How can the Bible be taken seriously with so much mismanagement of the world that human beings are supposed to be in charge? Many people are concluding it would be better if human beings died out. The answer is Jesus, the representative of the human race, the one who now is ruling all things well and will make all things well and all manner of things will be right. He's able to represent us. He's able to represent us because he is our pioneer. Second point, he's our pioneer. Verse 10, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Jesus is the pioneer who went ahead of us and broke through death. Roger Bannister, you've probably heard that name, was a medical student. He was a gifted runner as well. He set himself to one of the great challenges of athletics in his time to break the four-minute mile. Nobody in history had actually broken, run a mile in less than four minutes. And on May the 6th, 1954, Bannister busted through the four-minute barrier with a time of three minutes, 59 and four-tenths of a second. Runners have been chasing that goal seriously since at least 1886. That's over 60 years of trying. The challenge had involved the most brilliant coaches, the most gifted athletes in America, Europe, and Australia. Milers had been striving against the clock for years, but the elusive four minutes had always beaten them. It had become as much a psychological barrier as a physical barrier. And like an unconquerable mountain, the closer it was approached, the more daunting it seemed. Now, Bannister was a student. He wasn't a professional runner. He was a full-time student, and he had little use for coaches, and he devised his own system preparing to race. And the British press constantly ran stories criticizing him for being a lone wolf, doing his own thing. Experts said this, the four-minute mile could only be run in perfect weather, 68 degrees and no wind. The four-minute mile would have to be on a particular kind of track, hard, dry clay. And it would have to be in front of an enormous crowd of people urging the runner on to his best ever performance. Bannister did it on a cold day, on a wet track, at a small meeting in Oxford with a crowd of just a few thousand people. And when he broke the mark, everybody actually breathed a sigh of relief. It's possible. The pioneer has done it. And someone beat his time just 46 days later. <laughs> They've been trying for 70 years, but someone beat it 46 days later because now they knew it was possible. A year after that, three runners broke the four-minute mile in the same race. And since 1954, over 1,600 people have done this feat have run the, the four-minute mile, including some high school students, and the current fastest record is three minutes 43. What happened? We needed a pioneer, someone who could break through and open the way. And that is the main point of verses 10 to 15. Jesus Christ 
breakthrough. He's the pioneer of our salvation. He's gone through death to the other side. And so because of him, we know we can get through that too. It says here in verse 10, Jesus was made perfect. Uh, It says uh, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. What does that mean? The Bible is consistent and clear that Jesus was morally perfect. He never disobeyed God. He never acted in a way that was less than loving towards his fellow people or God. He was just like us but without sin. The New Testament is also clear that Jesus had all the power and authority that we would expect from God himself. He wasn't lacking in any power or capacity. Nothing was too difficult for him. So what does it mean to say Jesus was made perfect? Let me put this carefully. It means that for Jesus to do his role, his purpose, he needed something extra to make it complete. He needed to suffer. And he'd never suffered before. You see, if Jesus had only been supremely powerful, morally perfect, effortlessly great, how could he have known what it was like to be one of us? How could we have gone to him knowing that he would sympathize with us and feel for us in our weakness? He became one of us. He had to. He took on our flesh, our weakness in every regard except without sin. Jesus knew what it was to be exhausted. Jesus knew what it was to be perplexed. He knew what it was to be brokenhearted. He wept. He was hungry. He got tired. He had friends. He had family. People misunderstood him. He got disappointed. He was hurt. He went through it all. The full gamut of human experience except without sin. And therefore Jesus is able to be a pioneer. He went ahead before us and broke through. Imagine someone leading the wave of a party through an impenetrable jungle. They've got to get through this jungle. It's full of deadly spiders and snakes and, you know, plants that will kill you. And no one's ever been through this jungle before. There's no paths. There's not even a trail. There's no signs. But you've got to get through this jungle of death in order to get to the better way of life on the other side. And the pioneer goes ahead. On he goes, hacking through, forging his way through impossible terrain until he reaches the goal and breaks through to the other side and you see this marvelous view and the paradise that's through there. Explorers do this kind of thing for all sorts of reasons. Jesus Christ did it for love of you and me. The jungle was this whole world of suffering and pain and sin and death. Nobody's ever been through it and come out the other side. When he did it, he opened the way to God's future for all of us. It's called the world to come. He's like an explorer breaking through the jungle, opening the way to sunlit lands beyond. At the height of World War II, when this nation and many others were threatened with a grave evil and darkness, Winston Churchill gave a speech that helped to turn the tide. He's speaking of a battle and he said, upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity 
of our institutions. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be freed and the life of the world may move forward to broad and sunlit uplands. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. Friends, we don't have to brace ourselves for our duty. Jesus Christ did it for us. We don't have to win the battle. Jesus Christ won it for us at the cross. So the gospel is not do, but done. It's given to you. Jesus has, has won the great victory. Accept it. Live in the light of it. Don't ignore it. Don't neglect it. Don't fall asleep. Remember what he's done. The representative, the pioneer, and finally, the high priest, the one who cleanses our sin and understands our weakness. Verse 15. He, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus is here to help you. And perhaps someone here needs to hear that because the voices in your head are always blaming you and finding fault. And you think you've screwed up again. And you're not worthy and you're not good enough. That's the point. It's because we're not worthy and not good enough and we mess up all the time that he came to help us. He knows exactly what you're like and he loves you all the same. He made the journey from heaven to earth. He had to become like us. An angel couldn't be our high priest. We needed a real flesh and blood human to represent us. He's our high priest. Someone who's able to act on our behalf. Someone who embodies God's mercy to us. And tells us that God is reliable and he keeps his promises. He won't ever let you down. And a good high priest can fully sympathize with the people. And this is Jesus. And Hebrews even goes a little bit further than saying he's our high priest. It says he is our brother. Our older brother. An older brother who's not distant and set apart unable to cross the gap and reach the siblings. This is an older brother who can reach out. He's there for you. He's by your side. He's shared in your humanity. He's here for you. He was tempted. He went through trials. He suffered. And so he knows what it is to be you. And he's for you, by your side. And he's in front of you, the pioneer leading the way. And he's your representative in heaven, Praying for you, Christian friend. How great is this salvation? Why would we neglect it? In the early 19th century, there were two Chinese brothers living in California. And these brothers weren't twins, but they looked almost identical. They had very different characters, though. 
The older brother was hardworking and responsible. The younger brother was reckless. He was a criminal. He was addicted to gambling. One night he got into a fight in a card game and he accidentally killed a man. He ran away. He ran home. He got out of his bloody clothes and he left town. Later that night, the older brother got home and he realized what had happened. He knew the police were going to come looking for his brother. So he put on the clothes. And when the police came, they found him in the, the, the clothes and they mistook him for his brother and he was tried for the crime. He was found guilty and he was executed. He took his, brother, his younger brother's death penalty. Sometime later, the younger brother returned to town. He sneaked back, and then he discovered what had happened. He was shaken to the core. And he went to the police, and he confessed his crime. But you know what the police said? We can't execute two people for the same crime. You are free to go. The penalty has been paid. I wonder how his life changed from that moment on. The gospel says this is what Jesus Christ did for us at the cross. He was your true older brother. He took your penalty. He paid your shame. You didn't deserve it. You couldn't earn it. And that changes everything for us. There is nothing now that we face today or tomorrow or in the rest of our lives in which Jesus cannot sympathize, help, and rescue us. And there is nothing through which Jesus cannot find a way forward to lead us to God's new world. So let's pay close attention so that we don't drift away. Let's pray. A merciful and faithful high priest in service to God who makes atonement for the sins of the people. Lord Jesus, you, were suff- you suffered when you were tempted, and so you're able to help those who are being tempted right now. So I pray in this moment that we would know your help. Amen.